Oh, Lord, we come to you now as we open the Word of God, that the author of the verses, the resident within the blood-bought child of God's life, would be our preacher, would be our teacher, that you would hide the man to magnify the Savior. And Lord, if there would be any here in the sound of my voice now or later that need him and have never trusted their trust to him, may this be the occasion when they come to the end of themselves and to the beginning of the Lord of all. We pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. You may not think that sin is a Christmas word, but it is. In fact, it is sin that caused Christmas. Look at it this way. If mankind's biggest problem was ignorance, then God would have sent a teacher. Or if mankind's biggest need was poverty, God would have sent a billionaire. Or if mankind's biggest need was sickness, then God would have sent a doctor. But instead, we know that God sent a Savior. Because mankind's biggest problem then is mankind's biggest problem now is mankind's biggest problem in the future, sin. Sin is mankind's biggest problem. The name Jesus, Hebrew for Savior, God chose to send a precious Savior, heaven's child. Do you know him? Let me define sin. After all, we're saying this morning that sin is a Christmas word. We're saying that sin caused Christmas. So let us define sin. Sin is displeasing God by contradicting God's character in thought, in word, or by action, by commission, or by omission. That's a long definition of sin. Sin is displeasing God by contradicting God's character in thought, word, or action by commission or by omission. But let me get a lot more simple. Let me get a lot more direct. Sin, S-I-N, sin always has I in the middle of it. S-I-N. Sin always has I in the middle of it. I want it. I don't care. I am the most important. Sin always has I in the middle of it. Sin caused Christmas. Sin is a Christmas word. Now, please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. I want to go to some very unlikely uh, Christmas verses in Genesis chapter 3. You say, Genesis chapter 3, Pastor Rob, isn't that the fall of Adam and Eve into sin? Yes, it is. And that's where it all begins. The need for Christmas really all began in Genesis chapter 3. And I'm looking at verses 6 to 7 of Genesis 3 to begin with. Genesis 3, 6 and 7. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. 
Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. The first thing I want you to see in these two verses is that sin's pull. Sin's pull was on the couple. Sin's pull was that they could know something they didn't know, that they could taste something that they'd never tasted, that they could be nourished with goodness from some food they'd never had. And sin had a pull on Eve and then a pull on her husband. And today, Satan is not a creator. He is a mimic and a counterfeiter. And so he has no real imaginative, imaginative way to tempt you and me to sin. He still uses that same process. What we see in sin that looks like lust of the flesh, what we delight in our eyes, that's lust of the eyes, and what we think of in, uh, will make us better is the pride of life. These are the three categories, the three poles of sin that we saw in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, and we still see today. You can read of those three poles, those three lusts, that Satan still uses to pull us into sin in 1 John 2, verse 16. And so the pull of sin was in Genesis 3, 6 and 7, still in Genesis 3. Next, we want to see the push of sin. Sin not only has a pull, sin also has a push. And we see the push of sin in Genesis 3, verses 12 and 13, please. And the man said, the woman thou gavest to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. What a wimp. They've sewn these fig leaves on to cover a nakedness they never found shameful until they sinned. They futilely tried to hide from God. God found them. God asked them what they had done, not for information. God never asked anybody anything for information. God knows everything. He's God. And when the music was played and they met the composer of the universe, Adam says, the woman thou gavest me. She gave me to eat. Blame shift. Push. Sin not only has a pull that we fall into it, but after we've fallen into it, it has a push. We blame it on our mommy. We blame it on our daddy. We blame it on the government. We blame it on whatever. Sin is a Christmas word. Sin caused Christmas. But it's not only that sin has a pull, and it's not only that sin has a push, but it's also that sin has a pain. I see that in verses 16 through 19. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life with thorns and thistles that shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Oh, yes. Sin always has pain associated with it. Satan might try to convince you otherwise, or Satan might try to convince you that certain sin's pain you could tolerate in exchange for its pleasure. But I'm here to tell you that Satan switches the price tags on sin. And he puts a lower pain price on any sin than is actually the price. Sin caused Christmas. Sin is a Christmas word. And you know, 
is really sad, but sin has fallen on hard times these days. Sin has fallen on hard times both outside of the church, we kind of expect that, but sin has even fallen on hard times in some quarters within the church. We live in a time when sin has been dumbed down and calmed down and watered down into being mistakes. Only natural, subjective. What's sin for you might not be sin for me. Sin has been dumbed down, calmed down, and watered down to be marketable. Sin sells almost everything. Sin has been dumbed down, calmed down, and watered down to being somehow old-fashioned or funny. People now joke about sin. Sin has come to be entertaining. Some people see sin, the whole concept of sin, as a ball and chain around the ankles of the uneducated and the unsophisticated. Some would tell you that sin is passe. It's had its day, and it no longer is in play. Some will tell us that sin is a fossil, a vestige of a previous civilization. But we're so enlightened now, we don't have any sin anymore. Some would have us believe in this whole construct of sin being dumbed down, calmed down, and watered down, that sin is extinct. Do they read the papers? Do they watch the television? Sin has fallen on hard times. And some high-profile preachers don't even name sin in their sermons because it could discourage people. It's gotten that bad. But sin caused Christmas. And sin is a Christmas word. And all this talk about Dumb down, calm down, and water down notions of sin. All this Bible-less thinking about sin is nonsense. It's drivel. It's rubbish. It's hugely flawed thinking. And it's from the pit of hell. It's thought which lacks an adequate basis. I'm going to introduce you to a word. Some of you know this word already, but maybe some of you don't. I want to introduce you to the word of epistemology. Epistemology. Epistemology is the branch of philosophy which studies the nature of knowledge and the foundation of knowledge. Epistemology is the branch of philosophy that tries to figure out how do you know something. Now watch this. Stay with me. Today's epistemology of sin is this. Without God's input, through his word, the knowledge of sin to the average person who rejects God and his Bible, the knowledge of sin is a blind man in a black room looking for a black cat that isn't there. That is the epistemology of sin. When you reject God's teaching about sin, when you reject God's word about sin, when you reject that sin caused Christmas, when you reject that sin is actually a Christmas word, you wind up in the sorry place of thinking that sin as a concept is a blind man in a black room looking for a black cat that isn't there. And everything goes. 
It's a wild card how you live. Here's the deal. When a person claims to know something about sin while at the same time Xing out what God says about sin, then that person is blind in a black room looking for a black cat that is not in that room. Futile. Disorienting. Dangerous. Of course, the truth is, the truth is, we can only properly know about sin if we properly know God. We can only properly know about sin if we properly know what God has bothered to tell us about sin. And what does God tell us about sin in his book? Lots. God tells us a lot about sin. And because God loves us enough to address human sin head on, sin is not a non-existent black cat in a black room with a blind person searching for it. If you go with me to the New Testament book of Matthew, Matthew 27, Matthew 27, verse 45, when we go to this verse, we jump into the crucifixion report as to what happened when the Savior died, that this table remembers and memorializes what happened when Jesus willingly died as not a victim, but as a volunteer for your sins and for mine. And when we come to Matthew 27, verse 45, we see that sin is not a black, non-existent black cat. Sin, listen, is the 15,000-pound elephant in the room. And in Matthew 27, verse 45, it reports, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. That means that from noon until 3 p.m. in Palestine, which has a climate like the Bahamas when it's usually always sunny, it went jet black night from noon until 3 p.m as Jesus bore the sins of the world. As your rebellion, your vileness, your failures and mine were placed upon his innocent bloody shoulders when he suffered and bled and died to pay for sin. That's how serious sin is. That's how real sin is. You can see in your sermon outlines, in your bulletins, I've listed five different Hebrew words for sin. These words help us to see the different shades of meaning for sin which are in the Old Testament. I'm not going to take time to expand any of these words except to say what they stress about sin. Here we go. The five Old Testament Hebrew words for sin that are in your sermon outlines. The range of meaning for these Hebrew words is that sin is guilt, failure, missing the mark, perversion, rebellion, and error. That's sin. Was in the Old Testament, and it still is today. Guilt, failure, missing the mark, perversion, rebellion, and error. And because we still have those things, we can thank God and praise God the Father that this morning he sent his only and precious son years back to be the first Christmas and the 
forever payment for all of that guilt and failure and missing of the mark and perversion and rebellion and error. But thank God we do not just have an Old Testament composite picture of sin. We also have a New Testament composite picture of sin to add to the Old Testament cons- uh, picture of sin. And what do we see? We see 10 words, 10 Greek words from the New Testament that tell us the different shades of meaning of sin in heaven's viewpoint. What is sin according to the Greek words in the New Testament for sin? Sin is failure, missing the mark, offense, crossing the line, disobedience, falling down when one should have stood, being ignorant when one should have known, diminishing what should have been given in full measure, law-breaking, upsetting God's created harmonies. Sin is real. Sin is serious. Sin demanded a savior. Sin caused Christmas. Sin is a Christmas word. And because we still have failure and missing the mark and offense and crossing the line and disobedience and falling down when we should have stood and being ignorant when we should have known and diminishing what we should have given in full measure and law-breaking and upsetting God's created harmonies, because we still have all those nuances of sin, we this morning of all people shall thank and praise God that he sent his only begotten son to be the savior of the world who would believe and be forgiven of sin and delivered from its power and bondage. Jesus Christ came to pay for sin and to defeat sin. And so sin is not some non-existent black cat. Sin is still the 15,000-pound elephant in the room called the world. Sin's a big deal. Sin is a deal breaker between us and God. Sin caused Christmas. Sin required a savior. And sin, again, to say it, is a Christmas word. Now we look at Matthew 1. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. And how exactly did Jesus save his people from their sins? 1 Corinthians 15, the second part of verse 3 through the first part of verse 5, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared. That's how Jesus saved his people, you and me, from our sins. He died. It was predicted by the Old Testament that he would die. And the proof that he actually died was that professional Roman mercenary executioners took him off the cross and pronounced him dead, and they buried him. How did Jesus save you from your sins? He died to pay for them. But that's not all. How did Jesus save people from their sins? He was raised and lived after death. Verse 4, and that he was buried, 
and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared. Jesus Christ bodily resurrected from the dead to be alive forevermore. The Old Testament predicted that he would and it was proven that he was seen alive after being pronounced dead by the most experienced Roman coroners there were, the people who crucified people. That's how Jesus saves you from your sins. That's how Jesus is going to save the people this Christmas you share the gospel with at parties and get-togethers, how Jesus is going to save them of their sins when you tell them Christ died for your sins and arose. If you'll trust him and only him, he'll give you the best Christmas gift ever of forgiveness and heaven one day. If you've never received those gifts, even in the sound of my voice, you tell God, I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died in my place. I believe you raised him from the dead to live after death, and I transfer my trust to him, only him, and be born again. And then you'll have a water baptism to ask for down the road. Jesus paid for people's sins by dying and by rising. You know, alligators. Do we have alligators here? Praise the Lord. (laughs) Alligators give me the creeps. But there are lots of alligators in Florida, right? And a lot of Floridian homes, their backyards back onto intercoastal waterways, right? And these alligators sometimes come out of the intercoastal waterway and up onto the back lawn. And the way they get their prey is they dash across the land very, very fast. They clamp down on what they want for lunch. And then they hurry back into the water and they drown their prey. And then they have a meal. And so not, I have no criticism of this, that many Floridians who live on intercoastal waterways have legal permits to carry handguns. And so that's to protect themselves from alligator attack. If, if their granddaughter's in the backyard, they see a gator coming out of the, the water, they shoot it dead, and I would too. Sin is like an alligator. Sin is like an alligator. This brings me to a wonderful quote from Puritan preacher John Owen. Always be killing sin or it will be killing you. Always be killing sin or it will be killing you. If you don't believe that, you're very close to being an alligator's lunch. Always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Sin caused Christmas. Sin is a Christmas word. Now I have a couple of challenges to close this message with. You ready? I want you this Christmas season, this December, and maybe on into January, I have a challenge for you that you go over as many Christmas carol lyrics as you can in this month. Particularly, I want you to look in these Christmas carol lyrics for every time that sin is mentioned. You'll be surprised. I want you to look this month through all the Christmas carol lyrics you can find and look for every time that sin is mentioned. And the second challenge is, every time you sing a Christmas carol, this month in the morning services or Christmas Eve here at the church in the Christmas Eve service or in your family gatherings around the piano or the guitar, every time you sing a Christmas carol lyric, I want you to take careful notice of exactly what the lyric of that carol says about sin. 
that would be a good theological study this Christmas. Don't forget, Christmas has a word, and it's sin, among others. And sin caused Christmas. No sin, no need for Christmas. Lots of sin, a great need for Christmas. Glory to God in the highest. Christmas is God's loving solution for sin come to planet Earth. Glory to God in the highest. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for making it possible for the likes of me and my friends to be restored to fellowship with you, not because you just winked at our sin and said it wasn't important, but because your son died for it, paid for it in full, and could make it possible a restored, unbroken friendship and relationship with you. Oh, God, glory to you in the highest. May we take sin seriously, and may we share the remedy for sin this Christmas, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his holy name together. Amen.